Well, um, we, we are dismissing children for Children's Church. We're, gonna, we're continuing to learn how to be in this building, and we're going to ask that if you're a parent, um, it is okay. We're making a little change. It's okay to send your kids to the back. Uh, we've been asking you to take them back. What we really want you to do is go in person to pick them up. So we're, we're going to continue to figure out how to best use our space. We can dismiss children. The teachers are going to wait for you. We can send them to the back but we really need you to go get them at, at the end of the, the sermon after we uh, begin communion when you, when you find a chance. So we are all continuing to learn how to, uh, to be in our new building. Scripture reading today is from uh, Zechariah chapter, uh, chapter 7. And uh, Zechariah has included a series of visions and then he begins uh, to apply some of this to their situation. So we have a sermon uh, in this passage. We'll read it and then talk about it together. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, when her cities around her in the south and in the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn ear, a stubborn shoulder, and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the, the question that uh, dominates the passage is whether or not uh, God's people should continue to mourn and grieve as the period of exile draws to a close. Um, we read in this chapter, as in the beginning of Zechariah, a reminder that the reason they're returning to, to uh, Jerusalem from their exile, the reason they have to rebuild the temple and rebuild their city, is because their ancestors had disobeyed God. There were consequences that came. And during this time of exile, the people had grieved and mourned, recognizing the consequences of the sin and the destruction of their city. We're now uh, in a period of time that's uh, a couple years after Zechariah first gave his vision. 
Uh, the opening verse says, in the fourth year of King Darius. You may remember that the visions were given in the second year of King Darius. So two years later, the temple is being rebuilt. Religious practice is beginning to be reestablished. And the people are asking the question, should we continue to grieve and mourn? Should we weep over our sin as we did during the time of the exile? And the, the response that comes from Zechariah is, why were you weeping to begin with? I think we can relate to the, the question that he's asking here. Uh, all of us have had times in our life where we've done something wrong and we've gotten caught for it. And maybe there were consequences for what we did and it feels heavy and terrible. But the question that emerges, if inevitably, if we acknowledge it or make a confession or say we're sorry, is that, is that people may ask us and should ask us, are you you're sorry that what you did was wrong or were you just sorry that you got caught? And we're very familiar with the public apology that, that famous people do when they get in trouble. Uh, thankfully, for the most part, unfamous people don't get hammered quite as much, but uh, we still apologize. A famous person apologizes and they give an apology, something like this, I'm so sorry that what I said offended you. And you read between the lines, they're really saying, I'm so sorry that you're so sensitive, immature, that you mistook what I said. I'm sorry that it was hurtful to you. And when we hear that sort of thing, we rightly ask, are, are you sorry for what you did or are you sorry that you got caught? There's a big difference. Now, in reality, we might have all of those things mixed up together. But the question that, that haunts the passage is, are, are you sorry for what you did or are you sorry that you got caught? And in particular, this is the test that Zechariah offers. If you're really sorry that your sin offended God, then it's going to change what you do. The two things we'll do as we look at the passage today. First of all, I'm just going to walk through it kind of line by line to explain this, and we'll get the general principle. Are you sorry for you got caught, or are you sorry that your sin is an offense to God? But secondly, we're going to look at what uh, Zechariah adds to this. It's very similar, chapter 7 is very similar to chapter 1. He reminds them of their history, what they've come from, what they've been through, how, how, how they ended up in exile in the first place. But in this passage, Zechariah is going to add something. He's going to emphasize a particular part of their problem. And he's going to call them to new obedience to God, particularly new obedience around loving their neighbor and caring for other people around them. So we want to let that weight uh, carry through in the passage. Uh, first of all, we'll just walk through the passage and again see the, the point that he's um, that he's being made. Um, we see in verse one, the fourth year of King Darius, uh, two years after the temple building has begun again. And we know from history, uh, from other books of the Bible, that in two more years, the temple will be completed. So at this point in time, quite a bit probably has already happened. And if you remember what we've been doing through this series of visions, Zechariah's been walking them through the restoration of their religious ceremonies. The, the high priest is reestablished and reappointed. And in fact, in the close of all of it, Zechariah is told by God to take a crown and put it on the head of the high priest. He's wrapped with clean clothing and equipped and prepared to do their religious work in the temple that's being rebuilt. 
because the destruction of the temple was a sign of God's displeasure of, of their judgment that had come upon them, the rebuilding of the temple means that the judgment is ending. So a delegation comes from a nearby village, the temple's up and running, so to speak, even if it's not completed, and that's where you go to ask things of God. So they come and ask a question in verse three, should we weep and abstain in the fifth month as we've done for so many years? And then we see just a little bit later an expansion of that in verse five, uh, that when, when uh, Zechariah speaks back to them for God, he says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month, for these 70 years, what was it, to, was it for me that you fasted? And what we learn in that passage is it's not just a, a one month fast, but there was another month. And actually in the next chapter of Zechariah, we learn of two more months they were fasting. Uh, what, what scholars do when they, they look at these things is they recognize that the months of their fast lined up with really terrible things that happened to Jerusalem in the past. And the other clue we have in the passage is it talks about their, their fasting and grieving for 70 years. And that's roughly the period of their exile. So what they're asking is, is they're saying, we, you know, in addition to all of the regular religious activities of the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses, they had four other days of weeping and fasting where they, they remembered the destruction of their city. We have a little bit of an analogy to this. Every year when we, we hit September 11th, Americans will pause and remember a really significant thing that happened in their history. It's a history, historical reminder. Well, for them, these, these four monthly reoccurring periods of abstaining from food and drink, that is fasting and grieving, were an opportunity for them to remember um, something really bad happened to us. Well, now that they're back from exile, the temple's being rebuilt, they ask the question, should we keep doing it? And, and they probably wanted a yes or no answer. It seems to be the way they asked the question, yes or no. Uh, but they're talking to a preacher and they, they got a sermon. Uh, so uh, you can ask the Kerber kids, this can happen sometimes uh, in, in any uh, preacher setting. Um, you ask a question and you get, you get you know, a, a 10 minute answer. But the 10 minute answer is really important here because what Zechariah is saying to them is he's saying, before we decide whether you're done weeping and fasting, we wanna ask the question, what were you really sorry about? Was it for me that you were weeping and fasting? You see, that's the question that he's asking. Or was it for yourselves? Verse six, How, why would a, a weep, their, their period of remembrance and weeping and fasting be for, them, for themselves? So uh, on one level, it may be that they thought this religious activity made them really good religious people, it's possible. But it's also possible that what they were doing is simply remembering their pain and remembering the difficult circumstances. And there's a big difference between knowing the, the, the pain of your consequences and knowing what you did was wrong, right? When, when uh, those of you who are parents of young children, your, your, your kid's sitting on time out and they're, they're crying, uh, because they, you know, they can't play their video games anymore, whatever is happening. And you, you really ask yourself, perhaps, did they know that what they did is wrong, or are they just sad that they got caught? Well, we do the same thing as grown-ups, don't we? 
we face consequences in our life because things we, we have done. And, and often we can have a mixture of the two things, but, but Zechariah is pushing in on that point. Do you know what we did was wrong as an offense to God, as a, a harm to other people? Or are you just sad that the hammer came down, so to speak? Well, there's a test that is offered here. Uh, and uh, uh, what Zechariah does is he, he walks through a history lesson. He reminds them of their circumstances. He talks about the law. This is referring to the law of Moses that told them what to do and instituted consequences. Right? You, you reject God, this is going to happen. You're going to be scattered to the nations and God won't listen to your prayers. And then he reminds them of the former prophets. Uh, the former prophets mean the prophets before the exile. And what the former prophets did is they came and said, look, and this is the law of God. We read it in, in the books of Moses. You're not doing it. These are the consequences. If you don't turn back to God, you're going to be scattered to the nations and God will stop listening to you. And then they didn't listen this is what Zechariah is reminding them of. If you look on a little bit further, verse 11, this is still the history lesson. They refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn ear and they stopped their, a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So he's saying, listen, you who've come back from exile, this is what your parents did. Uh, you were given the word of God in the law. This is what he wanted. This is what it means to live as his people, as people who've been redeemed, who are meant to show God to the world. And then the, he sent prophets to warn you, you're not doing it. And then when you didn't listen, and he just piles on their, the, the metaphors of stubbornness, right? It's a, it's a, a stubborn shoulder. A, uh, they stopped their ears they made their hearts diamond hard. This is like prophetic imagery showing resistance and rebellion. So what happened? They were scattered to the nations. God stopped listening to them. It's just, you just this is Old Testament history in a nutshell. They ask the question, they get a sermon, they get a history lesson. And then, this is where it gets really interesting, Zechariah does something more. He takes this sort of broad commands of the law and all of the things that the former prophets complained about, and he, he takes a really practical example. And he says, did you listen to God when he told you to love your neighbor? And I think the reason he, he does this, it may be that was their particular problem that was, that was really being highlighted here, but it may be also that Zechariah knew God directing Zechariah applied this word to us that sometimes we can talk about sin in general and not think about anything in particular. Now, if you grew up in a more conservative uh, Christian tradition, you might be very familiar with language of sin and forgiveness, and it could become very easy for you to say, oh, I know I'm a sinner, Jesus is a savior, isn't it good news? But we treat sin as this sort of big category of general stuff and don't see the actual application to things in our lives. Well, Zechariah drives the point home specifically. He makes the application into their lives. In, in the middle of this section of rehearsing and seeking out their motives, he, he draws out one particular thing. 
verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. And he, he lists four things. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's what he lands on. He could have chose other things. God could have directed him a different way. There were many complaints of the prophets, their their false worship, their idolatry, uh, their immorality, and all these other areas. But he takes this one. He says, how did you treat each other? These four things that he lists here about rendering true judgment, that is justice. He talks about kindness and mercy. He talks about oppression of the weak and vulnerable members. And then he talks about something very personal, devising evil against another person in your heart. That's pretty personal. And we don't even specifically hear that those plans were completed. We assume they were. But he takes it to the heart. It says, how did you care for others in your heart? Well, each of those things, we could go back, and if you had a Bible with chain references in it that showed you connections, you'd go back and read in the laws of Moses, the exact references he's, he's thinking about. And then you could go and read how the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and so on and so forth came and warned the people. And he's asking them, are you, if you were really sorry, and if you really knew who God was, if you really knew what it, mean, what it means to be redeemed and restored as God's people, then you would begin to embrace these things that are important to God. I want to, in the second part of the sermon today, just think about those things for a moment. Just uh, play them out. In Zechariah, when he wants to ask if we are serious about loving God, he says, are you serious about loving your neighbor? It's not alone that uh, Zechariah would do this. You think of uh, several New Testament books like First uh, John or, or James that say, how can you say that you love God, who's invisible, when you don't love the actual physical person made in his image who's around you? In other words, throughout the Bible, there's always a connection between love for God and love for neighbor. When we look at this passage, we see several important principles that we can learn. I'm going to try and move quickly through them, but four principles we can take with us as we consider how to apply this to our lives. The first thing is simply this, that God cares deeply about how we interact with humans around us. Now, if you're familiar at all with the teaching of Jesus, this wouldn't be a surprise. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, he said, well, that's easy, two things. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Likely, if you know anything about Christianity, you would have heard that before. But what Zechariah does is he shows here, these are the types of things in the law that God thinks of when he thinks about loving your neighbor. First, as he says, render justice. Render true judgments. And then he talks about kindness and mercy. Mercy being, in a sense, the other side of the coin from justice. It is being helpful to people when they don't deserve it. Where justice is giving people what they do deserve. And praise God, the, the God 
of the Bible who is a God of justice is merciful to us, giving us what we don't deserve. And this same characteristic then is meant to guide and shape our behavior with other people. And then Zechariah lists uh, four types of people. These, this list are found throughout the Old Testament. And what they are, they're representative lists of people who are very vulnerable. They were people who would easily be denied justice because they didn't have power, or people who would need mercy because their circumstances were in need. He speaks of the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, that would be a refugee or an immigrant living in Israel, and then uh, finally, he speaks broadly of the poor. The, again, you find these lists all through the Bible. And I think the reason they're emphasized is that we, we often find what we mean by love when we look at a situation where it's not easy to love. We'll find out how just we are when we look at the cases where justice is most difficult. We'll find out how merciful we are when we look at people most in need of mercy. Uh, the reason these four are listed here as in other places is that they're, they're test cases. We'll see what a group of people is like by how they treat the marginal and the needy. Right? You don't learn as much about uh, love when you see how you treat someone who's powerful. You have plenty of reasons to do that. But those that are in need, those that are at the margins, those who are vulnerable become a test for our love. And I just wanna pause for a second and, and think about this principle in our lives. The stuff we're talking about here is uh, difficult stuff, isn't it? In fact, uh, uh, many of the arguments we have today in our culture surround the topics that are listed here in this passage. They're increasingly difficult for us to think about if you were to uh, open your, uh, your ESV Bible uh, to Exodus 22, you would see, the, that, as is the case in most English translations, is an, a, a title for a, a section of Scripture. And the section of Scripture that many of these things come from in Exodus is entitled, in the ESV Bible, Laws for Social Justice. Now, in, in the last 10 or 15 years, even since the ESV Bible was published, the term social justice has come to be a more loaded and difficult term. If you don't believe me, just go to your next family reunion. Ask people, you know, you, can, you gather, make sure you get people from different backgrounds, different political interests, rural, urban, millennial, boomer, married, unmarried. Get them together and, and you know, pull a pin out of that and just, what do you all think about social justice issues? Well, a few disclaimers as we go forward. Uh, most often we think of social justice in political terms. Uh, politics are important. They're one of the ways we love our neighbor, but they are not the same as the kingdom of God. As a church, we are committed uh, uh, to observing a healthy distance. We don't tell you how to vote. We don't tell you what particular policies to vote for. We don't tell you what po party to join. Sometimes that makes people mad, but it, hopefully it's a reminder the kingdom of God is bigger than our political discussions. And there are many other places we need to implement these things as well. Uh, for the church, our primary consideration is how do we consider justice and mercy in our ministry to the people around us? In your own life, as you think about your career, your neighbors and your calling, how do these principles implement in your life? 
And the first thing I simply want to tell you today is this. At the end of the day, what Zechariah is talking about here is not political progressive ideology or politically conservative ideology. It's not capitalism or Marxism. It's not how he presents it. It's about sharing God's concerns for the people around you. As a church, we'll have people that have different political ideas and hopefully we can talk about them well. Some ideas are better than others. Some are more true than others. But as we talk together, I hope that we can agree on this simple fact that this is for us as God's people a concern. We may not know the best way to care for the poor and we may have very broad and important discussions about how to do it. But we need to find common ground on the words of Zechariah because they're introduced with this simple formula, thus says the Lord. If you're a Christian, you don't have an option of saying, I care about the poor or I don't. You have a lot of different ways to do it and we may discuss what's best. But the introduction to this passage is thus says the Lord. And we think about care for the, the fatherless, the widow, immigrants and refugees. Particular policies are really difficult and we don't always know how to do it, but we may not dismiss that need lest we find ourselves in an uncomfortable place in the story. God forbid that we would be people who turn our shoulder, who make our hearts diamond hard and who stick our fingers in our ears. Second principle we learn in the passage is that not only does God care that there are consequences for not caring. Zechariah says, this is the reason you ended up in exile. Many, many reasons he could have chose, but the, the movement of this story, God's prophet speaking to his people about restoration is simply this. When you fail to listen in this area, you ended up in exile. Now, uh, we know the judgment of God would be a fearsome thing if we didn't know mercy in Jesus. And so as, as Christians, we are reminded in this passage, first of all, of all of our failings, all of our weakness, and all of our need for God to bring forgiveness through Jesus. But we also hear the warnings found not only here, but in the New Testament, that God cares deeply about how we love others. In the New Testament, Jesus not only summarized the law by saying, love God, love your neighbor, but in Matthew 25, when he described a characteristic of someone who was his follower, he said it was the way they cared for the poor, the needy, and the marginalized. That will be a visible, determining characteristic in the day of judgment. It's the word of Jesus for us. We also know in the New Testament that when husbands mistreat their wives or not loving as they are called to be, their prayers are hindered. Just as God says in this passage, uh, I called to you and you didn't listen. Don't be surprised when I don't listen and you call to me. Furthermore, in the book of Revelation, we hear this warning from the Lord Jesus himself to the church. He says, Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus speaking to the church says, unless they are seeking God's will, unless they are learning to value what God values, the very presence of God in their midst, 
is at risk. It's not a works-oriented religion. It's a question of whether we really are sorry. If we really know what sin is, we really know what redemption is, we'll begin to embrace God's purposes for our life. Two more points and we'll draw to a close. Another thing we can learn from this passage, not only is this important, not only is God's warning real, but uh, third, there is an association in the Bible between fasting and mercy. When, uh, when Zechariah speaks of the former prophets, it may be he's particularly thinking of Isaiah. Because in the book of Isaiah chapter 58, a, a similar question of fasting emerges. Uh, Isaiah asks the question, God speaking through him. He says, uh, when you fasted, why did you fast? Was it for me or for you? And then he goes on to say, what do you think I was looking for in a day of fasting and weeping? What do you think I was looking for when you said you were sorry for your sins? What he goes on to say is this. He says, is this not the fast that I have chose? Isaiah 58 in your additional scriptures. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Thus says the Lord. Similar, similar move, right? Fasting to mercy. Why is that? I, I think... Uh, uh, the answer is painfully clear, and that is the posture we have in fasting, self-denial, sacrifice, is exactly the same posture we must have as we seek to be merciful to those around us. The lesson we draw from it is simple. The life God calls us to in loving our neighbors is not easy. It's an important lesson for us to grasp. I recognize some of you come in here today and if you hear any language about social justice, you, you think, all right, someone's gonna manipulate me with Marxist propaganda and, and you're really suspicious. But some of you come here today and as soon as you hear the word social justice, you get really excited and you start to dream all of the ways you can get someone else to do good social justice. When we think politically, it's really what we're doing. And it may be true and good, but the, the concern that Zechariah brings is that our engagement with the good of our neighbor must be personal and it must demand something from us. It, it's not enough just to think about how a rich person will be taxed to care for someone else's need, which may or may not need to happen. God's call is one that calls for personal engagement. The reason that fasting is brought up in the context of, of mercy, I'm, I'm convinced, is that real mercy is hard and it requires sacrifice. If you don't believe it, ask our teachers, our parents, social workers, our doctors. Ask anyone who's in the business of service to people. And they probably started with great grand dreams of helping and saving everyone and you realize quickly this is really hard, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we can start off with great, great dreams and the implementation crushes us. Leads us to our fourth point, which leads us to the Lord's table. It's not God's intention that we do any of these things on our own. In fact, it, 
the connection between the living of the Christian life and the call to love neighbor and the power of God's spirit is deeply entwined in our experience. You wanna know how much you need God's help in your life? Start loving people sacrificially. The men's retreat yesterday, I was talking to one of our, our members who's a counselor at a, at a Christian rehab center for people with addictions. You wanna know what a hard ministry is? You can talk with Derek. He'll walk you through it. He loves these men, and they will rip your guts out if uh, you're not careful. You, you want to know how much you need God? Start loving people that are hard. And you will find your good intentions end very quickly. Your, your ideal dreams, the warm, fuzzy feeling of being helpful, it's going to end really quickly. We have a ton of ministry options for you if you want to check this out. Just ask me. We'll find things for you to do. It's hard. And it will drive you to Jesus like nothing else. You see, the things that are described here, not only do they fit the Old Testament, they also fit the Gospels. It's really just a summary of Jesus in his ministry, isn't it? How did Jesus engage with people? Justice, mercy, special attention to the marginalized, probing the very thoughts of the heart. That's how he lived. And, and the, it was a scandal to the religious people around him because they said the, the, the poor and the outcasts streamed to Jesus. They love him. And the religious leaders who kept a safe distance from it all looked down their nose at his mercy. Friends, as you embrace the life of Jesus, you will see how deeply Jesus has to empower you to do it. I, I, can't, I can't get through a day without asking for God's help. And the more clearly I see, it's, it's actually like an hour or two. I can delude myself a little bit of that time. We come to the Lord's table as people in need of help to love. Let me invite you parents, teachers, people working in a business with other humans, people with neighbors and friends, those of you part of a church, those of you that have relationships with anyone else. The call to love is hard, isn't it? When, the, when the, the glow of the wedding songs wears off and you're confronted with a real person with real problems, the call to love sacrificially is immensely hard. Come to this meal. This is not a meal for sufficient people. It's a meal for needy people. It's a meal for people that are trying to love and running out of grace and energy, time, and patience. It's a meal for people that need Jesus. You never meant to do any of this on your own. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the life of Jesus working through you. We must do it in his strength. And this is why Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, desired so deeply to eat with them. That's what he said. He was about to go to the cross. His closest friends were going to deny him. You talk about someone who had a hard time in ministry. Jesus was betrayed by all his friends, his own his own people abandoned him. The Roman Empire that prided itself on justice and law 
conducted a mistrial to get him killed. Jesus was rejected, abandoned, betrayed, and on his last night, he was thinking of his disciples. He was thinking of you. He said, I want, I want to eat this meal with you because you're going to need it. You're not going to get very far on your own. You need me and the power of my death and my resurrection if you're going to live differently and love effectively. Would you come and eat with our Lord? Let me pray.